This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Top of the whatever time of day it is that you're listening to this. What are we talking about? Insert time here, Puka. We are diving into the chunkiest of Changeling supplements in the entire line, Isle of the Mighty. And this will be the first of a trilogy of episodes since the book is divided into three books. It is really three supplements and one that deal respectively with England, Scotland, and Wales. So joining us for the England section, we have resident expert and special guest, Andrew Goodman. Hello there. Hello. So, Andrew, uh, we've had you on before. Thanks for coming back. Very excited. So what uh, makes you somewhat of an expert about England? I don't know if I'd go so far as to say expert, but I do currently live in England um, and have for the past seven years. Both of my parents are English, born and bred. Despite being born in the US, I have grown up a significant portion of my life in the UK. So I, uh, I'd like to think I have the advantage of both an insider's and outsider's perspective on the United Kingdom, and particularly on England. Whereas I just have a mother and an aunt who are devoted Anglophiles, so go figure. I did grow up watching EastEnders, though, so that, that counts for something, I think. EastEnders, good good thing to watch, uh, Recommend would recommend in the med- when we talk about media. Uh, to watch. I, I do have it on my list, yes. <laughs> my, my, da- my Danish uncles are a big fan of it. Excellent. So I want to just start off by saying that I do love this cover. The art has like some really intricate little uh, fairy beings and details that, I don't know, overall give this sort of mythical sense. I think it's Adam Rex who did this cover, and it's just one of my favorites aside from probably the Deterlizzi covers for the Kith books. It is one of those... Um one of those pictures that the more you look at it, the more I want to know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, a lot of nevers. Well, obviously they talk about the weird little like never things. I'm, I've never been satisfied with the amount of stuff they wrote on nevers. Mm. Um, and the creepy boggin with all the like dolls strapped to his back. I, I need an explanation. And the presumed yildu in the tree, I should say. But I think they're they're kind of standing around one of the three enchanted wells that we get reference to, mm. where there's a sort of sacred magical well in each of the three countries of the UK. Mm. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And then opening it up, we have written by, I am inclined to say Beth Fisky, but that's like the Italian pronunciation, so she may say Fishy for all I know, as well as Jennifer Hartshorn, who we've seen before, Dina McKinney, and Wayne Peacock with additional development by Phil Brucato, because lest we forget, this is a mage crossover book, which we'll be talking about in a later episode, but it certainly shows in the writing throughout the entirety of the book. I love that this was back when the stained glass window borders are actually hand-painted pictures of that sort of old stained glass, or that stained glass painting kit stuff that you used to be able to get, Maybe hmm. you still can. It's definitely an actual painting instead of, instead of um, something made on Photoshop. Warts and all. Yeah. Well, anyway, shall we get into the text? Ooh. Yes. So it starts out with uh, the, the most of the book is broken up into three books. Book one, England. Book two, Scotland. Book three, Wales. Before that is starting with 
Is this a Welsh name? I'm it is. pronounce this wrong. Shandana. Shandana saga. Or maybe Llandona. I don't oh, know where the yeah. stress is, but it's that sh double L. Yeah. It's kind of like if you put your mouth in the position to say L, but then try to say S instead, you'll make it. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Perfect. I'm not even going to try. The uh, <laughs> Welsh have successfully kept the English out for a long time, and that is largely down to not being able to pronounce any of their names. Not enough vowels, maybe. Mm. But yes, we start with this really not even three full pages of fiction, and it's sort of the story of Ariana Verhemer, who's a young verbena. It doesn't state outright when this is set, but the implication I get from it is that it's, I think, late 19th century, because they talk about Bismarck's impending unification of the German states. And then it suddenly catapults us into ancient Roman times, and then back. So we're already kind of adrift in time with this introduction. I don't know. Overall, how did you two find the opening fiction? A bit confusing myself, I'll have to admit, but I'm often like that with opening fiction in these books. Hmm. I quite enjoy the sort of vaguely Pride and Prejudice vibes that the frame story (laughs) of the story gives. And then the... I think the the story that is told within the story back in ancient Rome, I feel like is there almost, I mean, it plants the seeds of some of the major themes. Like it, it states loud and clear, this is a mage as well as a changeling book. I like that it sort of gives this feeling of, it does give you an idea of just how mixed the British Isles are, even from its early history. It's something we often don't think about today, but it's had many, many, many invasions, and all of those cultures have come in over time and then sat and stewed for literally centuries. So I quite enjoy that bit of it. The one thing that feels a bit like a bit of a nod and a wink at the end, and I both love it and hate it, is right at the end of the frame story, the woman who has just told this story says, uh, essentially, oh, I'm pretty good at, you know, getting wayward youths to do what I need them to and like gives herself a little pat on the back and it almost seems to say everything that I've just told you may have been a lie which I think was comes back to something I mentioned in in uh, when we did Kith with Dullahan that I absolutely love that you have an unreliable narrator for the history in any of these early books there is no such thing as an unbiased narrator and I felt like this story established that quite well I'll agree with that, except it still bothered me that what she's complimenting herself on is getting her niece to agree to an arranged marriage, which I find like a little bit, you know, an arranged marriage that is the result of an ancient pact between the Fae and mages as well. So, yeah, I don't know. This is this was definitely Ruby of the Rubina tradition, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I thought that worked, but uh, I have opinions on mage side for the Rubina. Yeah. It also just felt a little bit too explanatory to me. There's a lot of historical information kind of folded into the tale. To me, it doesn't flow as naturally as this actual situation would unfold, which I get. I mean, it's the introduction to a role-playing book. It's not an actual interaction in a novel or something. But I still like my opening fiction not to feel so textbooky. If that makes mm. sense. Mm. I-, I thought the the historical bit of the history. I mean, the history of a history, but the back in Roman times, I liked that part that I thought worked mm. well. The rest was like a framing piece, it felt like more. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I liked the older part, for sure. And she doesn't seem too upset about this vaguely arranged marriage. Like, right at the start, the woman starts by saying, 
do you not like him? Because we'll find someone else if you don't like him. And she's like, no, I like him. And he's rich and handsome and absolutely loves me. I don't know. She's going to continue the bloodline. Yeah, it's, it seemed like a good job arranging rather than you need a forced marriage, if that makes sense. This might be the yeah. bogan in me showing, but I mean, you know, arranged... I mean, okay, arranged marriages where you have no choice, not okay. But the, like, matchmaking side of things, I think we perhaps sometimes are a little harsh on with our historic bias. But, uh, I mean, we basically yeah. do the same thing with websites today anyway. I think it might have helped if it had been clear from, like, sentence one that this was set over 100 years ago, even in the frame story. That's true. But, That's true. Yeah. In any case, they pack a lot in in these two and a half pages worth of text. So. And that's going to be a running theme of this entire book. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so shall we Shall we carry on to the history of Engelland? Mm. Chapter one. I do really like that the epigraph here is from Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which is, in my mind, sort of the quintessential English folklore-related literary work. It just kind of looms so large over English literature in my in my estimation. But. I have a question that sort of relates to the chapter titles of this book. Mm. Mm. The na- the sort of fey name for England is what, Albion? Albion. Right? Yeah. But isn't that like Great Britain, not England? I think Albion. I mean, don't quote me on this because I'm not an expert, as I've said. I think Albion did ref- was a kingdom to sort of the south of the southern part of the land mass. Okay, because I, I, it's like, was the name, it's like the name in Gaelic for Scotland is basically the same. I mean, creative liberties, I guess. It becomes a little bit like Tolkien's writing where you say, ah, well, to the dwarves, it was this name, but then it was also this name, and to the elves, it was this name. Yeah, but it, okay, so it's used enough for specifically England outside of Changeling the Dreaming and Mage the Ascension that it makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I think it sufficiently makes sense to call call it that. Of course, they immediately then throw it out the window with saying, ah, but it's not one kingdom, it's like five. Um, so speaking of frame stories, we kind of get an academic lecture framing for this chapter. This might be my own bias as an academic, but I get a lot of banality from thinking about that. <laughs> like, let me talk about the history of the Fae and the Mages in Britain using transparencies. It's uh, Yeah. If it was updated, it would have, like, knocker-built PowerPoint slides. Right, exactly, yeah. He does imply that he does something other than use a PowerPoint in projector, but uh, not PowerPoint, mm-hmm. a uh, overhead projector. He implies he does some sort of magic to do something more interesting. I forget where. Mm-hmm. Somewhere when he's about to present, he's like, oh, hang on a minute, that would be far too banal. Just a moment, and you just picture him waving his hands around and making it glow. But he's still using pa- transparencies somehow. <laughs> Maybe he's yeah. just making them giant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Holographic. Oh, that's it. that would be amazing. Like, you just hold up a new tapestry every time. <laughs> There's also the note here that this this whole section, this whole lecture is taking place at the 1997 Tailcraft Festival at Parkamore Freehold, Conistonwater, Principality of Tears, Lake District, England. So I'm curious, and this might be sort of a question for Andrew. There's a moment... Or is it so like on page 10 when the she who's kind of opening the festival says together i believe we can take the fight to the enemy restore britain's might and regain the lost age of glory 25 years later i feel like that sentiment comes across as to use a word the kids use cringe what was in your estimation the ethos of england in the 90s like was there 
more of a sense of urgency about that? Like we have to regain our, our former stature or something? I'm going to have to show my age a bit here and say that I was not really aware of any particular attitude like that. In fact, but from what I've gathered, I do I do remember the 90s and I was in England. From what I've gathered from relatives talking, that's really not a common attitude in the 90s. My grandparents were still very much alive and kicking and remembered World War Two and World War Two very much kicked any sort of sense of empire that might have remained in England out at that point. There, there are a lot of Britcoms that I watched from the 90s. Not This is very secondhand or third, <laughs> maybe thirdhand knowledge, but a lot of them produced in the 1990s would present somebody with that view as the butt of the joke of being yep. overly patriotic yep. and hmm. maybe kind of cringe. So it has for decades been very not okay to be patriotic in the UK. In fact, even today, generally, if someone shows a lot of patriotism, they're going to get a little bit of a raised eyebrow as perhaps being a bit too keen, shall we say. Like somebody who's worried about statues in an American context. Yeah, generally speaking, no one, and I mean no one, is more critical of England than the English. The, that particular attitude, I, the, or that particular line, I, su- I should say, circling back, came across to me as something that only a she could possibly have said at that point. Fair. And what golden age she's talking about, I'm not entirely sure. The 1300s, maybe. <laughs> I, I was thinking before, you know, those upstart Normans showed up. But... Mm. Well, on that note, we can advance into the actual history section, perhaps. There is also, we've seen this before in books where there are these sort of purple tinted sidebars, but instead of being chimerical geography notes in this section, they're little timeline bits. So we have the time of myth and Roman occupation to start. I did find it a little frustrating that they sort of, so like they have the time of myth as the title of the sidebar and then the time of myth as the title of the section next to it. And in many cases, when they do that through this chapter, the events on the timeline aren't represented in the text and vice versa, which was a little bit aggravating. (laughs) This whole chapter of the history just gave me absolute whiplash. I both love it and it just does my head in because they don't talk about the mortal history unless they feel like it. Right, yeah. But they very clearly are working things around the mortal history, which I find very impressive. They managed to capture a lot of themes of the ages that they talk about but at the same time, not actually talk about what was happening in those ages at all. And then mm-hmm. there's some rather important bits of history that they just completely jump over or yeah. leave as a footnote. Like they're sort of yeah. slipping a stone across English history. And uh, I both love it and hate it at the same time. <laughs> there's a, on the Time of Myth timeline, they talk about what I know of as Doggerland. Mm. Mm-hmm. And back when you know Great Britain was a peninsula. I don't really get why that's in there they don't really get into it they don't really i don't know i just like why is it it's like well, you might as well start talking about beaker culture or like getting into yeah yeah but that's exactly that's exactly what i mean is like they reference it in the sidebar and then don't talk about it at all in the actual text and so you wonder well why is it included yeah you know? some of them are a little more understandable like so so it says land link between britain and the continent submerged it's like okay i can draw my own conclusions about why that might kind of matter but something Mm -hmm. like first farmsteads settled in britain or julius caesar lands in britain then withdraws 
It's like, well, that seems kind of important. Or later they start getting into real history bits where I'm like, this is getting in the weeds. And it's not like most of the audience even knows about these things, but it's not giving enough information to introduce them. It's like, well, we all know about this historical fact. It's like, no, we don't. And you're not explaining it and we're not using it. Why are you? The irony is that, you know, 25 years later, as we've talked about with other setting books, people can go online and find history stuff on their own. But then at the time when this was written, I would even hazard that British history being one of the best documented bodies of history in the world. <laughs> like this was one of the few that people could go to the library and find extensive information back in 1997. And yet it seems like they didn't bother with this. <laughs> so I'd, I'd love to think, and I kind of wish there was a forward saying this, I'd love to think that they included them as like intentionally saying, ah, here's some things that you might want to use in your own game and mm. research mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. and get some inspiration. But they don't say that anywhere. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, that's probably a really cool thing that you could make a whole story out of. Mm -hmm. um, like a giant flood narrative that drowned Doggerland and all the people that were there. Like, that sounds like something that should be in the mythic age of the Fae, but... Uh... Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, that sort of ties into a question of which maybe we'll bring up later, but who is this book for? Because hmm. hmm. I have to imagine people raised in the British school system, like in England, and people raised, I don't know, in the US, like they've learned different things about the history of England and, and different touch points and different assumptions about what you know, what they know and what they don't know. That's... And I'm a li little bit confused as to who this is for, some of these points. Yeah. That's um, it's definitely true. Having been in both school systems, I can I can guarantee that, say firsthand, that there are definitely different views on English history. Yeah, if you're referencing it in a way like a lot of this seems to be referenced in a way that the people will know what you're talking about. Yeah. From another angle, it's also the question of is this intended primarily for changing players or mage players? No. Mm -hmm. We speed pretty quickly through thousands of years of Celtic and Roman history. <laughs> And then, mm -hmm. like, the spread of Christianity gets this extended write-up because it focuses on mages and their response to the rise of monotheism, which is important and a really, you know, central theme for verbena mages or whomever. But it's like changelings would have a different, or the fae, I guess, at this point, because it was before they were changelings, they would have a different response to that and engagement with that. And there's yep. so little except to be like, oh, the fae didn't like the spread of Christianity. Here's three paragraphs on the proto choristers. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. Like, yeah. It is this a, is this is this framing story a she doing the thing or a, no? It's no, a verbena. Sam oh. being verbena master. Oh, it read very hermetic to me, but okay. But uh, it kind of comes across as the well. This is by a mage trying to bring in changeling stuff, but they don't quite get the changeling stuff. <laughs> Almost as though that's what the authors were like as well. Yeah, I do remember the first time reading this book, being very excited, having sort of just started to really get into Changeling, picked and thought, oh, there's a setting book for the one of the countries I grew up in, and started reading through and got sort of two pages in and went, why is this talking about Mage? Did I buy the wrong book? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to actually, I don't even know how we'd figure this out. Why is this a crossover in particular? Why is the book on I mean, Great Britain also a crossover book? If you think about the big mythologies that came out of England, the biggest one, I think, being King Arthur, I can see why there would be both mage and fae involved. 
because both mm. of those are huge aspects of the folklore. Yeah, and that was a bit. We, we had that early interview with uh, Ian Lemke was a, one of the big mm. aspects of Changeling when it was first written, like their theory and legend. Yeah, but I yeah. think very few, uh, even smaller folklores that you might find out in the countryside, fairies will very often also intertwine with witches and wizards. That the groups are very, very much intertwined in the stories. So it does make sense thematically for them to be intertwined in the history as well. Mm-hmm. Just, I do find myself wanting a bit more changeling in a lot of the places, but then this book would be even bigger. So, yeah, <laughs> I think that's co- like, I remember our sister podcast. I don't want to gender mage the podcast, but it was sibling. Sibling, yeah, podcast. sibling podcast. They have, they have covered this book as well. And I think it was Adam in it, maybe both of them saying that they wanted more mage in this book and it was too much change. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can I can say with authority, because this is something that I've looked into as part of a Storyteller's Vault project, this book has more named mages than many mage supplements. <laughs> I mean, that does not say it's not a changeling supplement, let's be from... True, absolutely. <laughs> Especially for, for the first edition. But yeah. Anyway. <laughs> when you get into chapter two, there's certainly more changeling than mage. But the history, that's where we are. Yes. You, you mentioned Arthur. I was... Among other things, I was surprised not to see more about Arthur. I mean, there's like mention of the dream realm of Camelot. There's mention of Morgan Le Fay betraying the son of Kerna, who's like the big overlady of the island at this time. And maybe there's more in the whale section. But yeah, mm-hmm. since it is so central, it's like you kind of expect to see a little bit more about it. I, I think of Arthur as uh, French people writing about a Welshman, but framing character does say that he's going to let the, the Welsh guy talk more about King Arthur. I didn't get through that chapter, so I can't confirm, but I vaguely recall that there was more of, about the Arthurian dream over there. But I do agree it's a shame that it's not mentioned more in this history, because this first chapter's history does kind of make the backbone for the rest of the, the presentations. My recollection is that there's a lot about Merlin in the Welsh section, but not as much about Arthur proper. But I don't, yeah, I don't remember. I would have liked them to at least have had a sidebar, perhaps like lampshading the fact that the story of Arthur has gotten so big that Mm. that would echo through the dreaming and perhaps they just don't know at this point. Even the changelings would be going, this might have been part of our history, but it also might just be something the Victorians got a bit obsessed with. We're not sure. After that, we get more about the War of the Black Tork than probably any other event in English history, so I guess that's significant to both the Fae and the Mages. I'll also say, I do really like the art in this book. The two sidebar panels on pages 14 and 15 are the most compelling art I've ever seen of neck jewelry in a long time. Mm. I'm all for powerful MacGuffin artifacts that can steal souls and put armies to sleep and everything, but it it also kind of seems like I can't imagine how to use this whole section in a game except to say, here's this artifact that I'm going to drop into a game. And I think I would much rather have the same amount of text on Arthur or like, you know, other things that could be used more other ways in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I get very confused as to exactly what a talk does. Because it talks about the guy that uses it enchanting the son of this queen but then it references her trying to free him and then talks about trying to awaken him 
but then also talks about him being dead when the talk is lost and wants to get it to resurrect him, so I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Yeah. And there's also references to the Fae ruling many of the mortal lands before the Saxons set up their kingdoms. Well, that seems like a pretty major thing to get into. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it also references um, the Gilidu. Yes, this is our first reference. But uh, as someone who knows a lot about the Gilidu, Puka, do, do they work as the, I don't know, mythical prehistoric of the Fae guardian of ancient long last treasure kind of? Is that like their part of their shtick? I'd say it is just because, so like the figure of the green man in general through the mythography of the islands, you know, it is, it is kind of associated with magical places and magical objects Mm -hmm. in terms of having a specific one guarding a specific treasure. Sure. I don't think it particularly needed to be a Gildu, but why not? Okay. Yeah. So it sort of seemed like if it was Arthurian, it'd be like, well, it's the equivalent of the lady of the lake, right? The Right, and well, and they do find the black torque at the bottom of the Albion pool, so... Yeah. Okay, but, like, of the kiths, it kind of makes sense of Gilly-Doo to be that instead of some other... I think it makes more sense than giving it to, like, Apuka, probably. <laughs> yep. Not that not that Apuka wouldn't want such a wonderful item, but... No, you know. but as the, as the guardian... Yeah. Yeah. But they're, like, an older kith. The oldest, some might argue. Mm-hmm. Okay. That works. We then get a section called Age of the Mages, which leans heavily into the mage stuff. But then the Glastonbury Compact, which I actually do really like. So this was when the Tremere were first kind of making inroads into the island uh, in the person of Mirlinda, one of the, whatever they're called, Circle of, Council of Seven, Circle of Seven, Inner Circle, whatever they are. Um, the Tremere are the worst. I'm just going to preface that. by The Fae and the mages got together at Glastonbury Abbey and decided to get rid of the vamps and even though they didn't totally get to do that forever it was still the first like coordinated joint alliance between the two groups so that's a good note and then we get a little history of the traditions in case changeling players by this point were wondering what the hell was going on which they most certainly were yeah and there's like all this information in the sidebar about Henry II, and Queen Eleanor, and Richard Lionheart, and King John, and the Magna Carta, and just none of it, none of it is in the text. (laughs) I think, again, I used the phrase whiplash earlier, that you you go down this timeline, and you're like, oh, that's that's a changeling, or that's that's a fantasy thing, and then, oh, but that's real history, and that's a real history, but also a fantasy thing, and there's a fantasy thing that ties into real history, and um, yeah, it does rather do your head in after a while. Yeah, the only reference to the Norman Conquest is half a sentence where it says, by 1075, almost a decade after the Battle of Hastings, yeah. and that's it. They're so. just sort of going, wait, what? That, that wasn't a footnote. That arguably so. was the start of England. Why did you skip that? Yeah, and that's medieval times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then we get to the shattering, like, at a brisk clip, we are moving through medieval history. One thing about the way that this is kind of set up, and and this happens earlier as well, it says the Sundering is 500 BC and the Shattering is 1348 in line with the Black Death. And I know that this is kind of standard for especially first edition Changeling, but I really kind of bristle at the whole the Sundering and the Shattering happened at the exact same time everywhere idea. Mm. I always want it to be a little more granular. Mm -hmm. I think it happening in England. 
like especially the shattering maybe but even that i would say like there are other candidates and i think that c20 you know one of the good things mm -hmm. that c20 did was kind of imply it was a series of like one thing after another leading up to which even when you look at the history of the 14th century you have a bunch of crises that mm -hmm. occurred in succession so if we look at the shattering as the erosion of belief and the sort of sinking in of i don't know apathy mm -hmm. then there's a lot of candidates over a long period of time He's not even talking about like i think as the shattering i don't like personally i don't think the black death's a great event to trigger that mm -hmm. especially in the c20 where it's like the evanescence was a wave of glamour the black death should be like it wasn't boring i guess is the way of putting it <laughs> i can understand it in through the lens of so many people dying means so many dreams are leaving the world and if you survive seeing all those people dying makes you pessimistic makes you not dare to dream I could understand mm -hmm. that framing, but I don't think I've ever seen an explanation, really. It's just the Black Death caused it, and that's it. In in Europe, it did trigger a lot of societal change, too. Yeah, and artwork. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... You know, there was a lot of... I would have it as an event in Changeling. I just don't think that one... I, there, I can see other events roughly within 100 years of that that might make more sense. But Yeah. And, and, it, and it does even here, I think. It's not saying it was just everything was hunky-dory and then the Black Death happened, right? It's just talking about all these other events leading to it and yeah. contributing, so. Yeah. I did like the note that the Verbena, because they have the most skill with life magic, that let them resist the plagues better than other groups. And that's why they're a little bit better informed about the Fae, because they've, they've maintained that line of knowledge from medieval times. I thought that was a nice flourish. So then we have a bit about King Albion in 1424, who was a knocker commoner who seized the vacant throne of the, at the time, Kingdom of Wool, now the Kingdom of Smoke. And then he ruled for however many hundreds of years. Yeah, that was also like, I don't know, a knocker basically being a she, I, I get a sort of perverse delight out of. But... He must have been in the deepest of bedlams, though, by the end. Maybe he's King yeah. Ironheart from the CCG. Yeah, I was about to tie that in. Also, his name's Albion. Evidently. I mean, that's just a power move right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, then we get Windguard's March, which is one of the most mage events in mage, particularly Sorcerer's Crusade. And I don't even know if the Fae are mentioned. <laughs> oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, they're kind of like, oh, and the Fae were there too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you kind of have the reverse. You have the Grand Convocation, which is an entirely unnecessary story about Boggins jumping for a box. So, funnily enough, I actually like this section, and here's why. Because the very next section dives into Elizabeth I, which mm. means this whole bit with King Albion and his court and the jumping Boggins and all the intrigue that he's going through, I mean, it roughly, at least somewhat, overlaps with King Henry VIII. Why they don't talk about him, I don't know. And not only that, but I think that... I mean, we've jumped several hundred years, but there's Henry VIII, there's the War of the Roses, all the crazy stuff with the Tudors, and I kind of like that they've at least captured something of the crazy courtly intrigue dramas that would have been taking place at the time. Yeah. 
yeah, they have this big thing about like Christianity in England earlier, and they're like the foundation of the Church of England like gets nothing. It's, yeah. mm. They do mention Agincourt, so that's you know. <laughs> they mention there's that. Oh yeah, and and the great the Grand Convocation section. It's called that. That's about mages, like the forming of traditions. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then has and nothing to Boggins. do with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the sidebar, which is also titled the Grand Convocation, mentions. Grand Convocation in Horizon Realm from 1457 to 66, nine traditions named and codified. I get the feeling, because it does also mention in the credits that Satiros Picado was working on this book in an additional capacity, presumably to cross-check mage stuff. At the time, they would have been working on Sorcerer's Crusade. And so I wonder if that led to some of this being included. Oh, like a third pass edit? Oh, let's add this stuff. Right, because there's a lot of detail here for something that has basically no bearing on Changeling. That would make sense if like the write-ups were largely cemented, but the sidebars were a late addition. One of the other things that I notice about a lot of the sort of sub-stories within this narrative is a lot of them kind of end with the structure of, oh, maybe so-and-so is still doing X for all I know. Like with Wingard's March, the end is... By 1452, most British mages in Cathane were satisfied that they had obliterated Wingard's legacy. Those who weren't probably continue hunting to this day, or with the jumping Boggin who ended up soaring into the clouds. Whether he ever came down, no one ever discovered. For all I know, he may be ready to fall any day now. I get that they're leaving these hanging threads that you could potentially hitch a story onto, but there's so much detail and specificity leading up to that with so little context about when and where that story was taking place that it's just kind of like, all right, there it is. You know, it, what do you do with that besides taking that prepackaged story in its entirety and just kind of dropping it like a depth charge into a game? So that, that bugged me a little bit, <laughs> but nah. there's also an implication that Chimera didn't exist before the Elizabethan era, which I found strange. That confuses the ever-living daylights out of me. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I remember coming across that and going, well, hang on, so what What are any of the things they have there? Yeah. Either everything was literal and all of those knocker war machines were actual physical crazy machines they were building, or, I mean, what what's the dreaming made out of then? I, yeah, that, that really perplexed. Moreover, then where did all of the Chimera come from? That seems like a rather important point. Yeah, I think this goes back to, uh, this is uh, written by a Verbena. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, t- to me, if you were to have like Chimera showing up that weren't there before, which would be a very different interpretation than how this book's going, would be the mm. Shattering, right? Like, yeah. but I also found the name of the issue, Lord Binion, a little bit on the nose. <laughs> it's like, uh, just doubling down on that exoticism aren't we i should also mention midnight never come by marie brennan the novel that is based on a changeling chronicle set in elizabethan times which i think does a much better job of presenting this whole setting than these pages do so i would like to recommend that anyway then we get to the new world or rather we don't yeah we know that it happened around the time as some other stuff that we learn about i think this was the point where i threw my hands up and went what i give up (laughs) The, the title of the section is Settling of the New World, and then it does not talk at all about anything that happens across the Atlantic. It doesn't even mention it. The sidebar does. Yes. Well, well I mean, the uh, sidebar... Well, <laughs> one of the points in it does, of the three. It doesn't even say, oh, so they decided to leave. It, ju- it sort of implies they're going that direction, and then 
Yeah, it also implies like the entirety of England's colonization of the Americas consisted of pilgrims, which is what? Also, we all know it was only the English. Couldn't be anyone else. There are no other villains from Europe. Couldn't possibly be. Sorry, that's a yeah. personal bugbear. Thanks, Disney. If they ever made an Iberia book, then we would probably hear more about it. Mm. Yeah, or France. They do mention the, is it the transportations to Australia? I think that was the term that was used. And use that as an excuse for a really awkward story about a troll and an Aboriginal shaman playing music together and settling all their differences. The only thing I love out of that story is now I really want to hear a bagpipe and a didgeridoo playing together. Challenge yeah. accepted. <laughs> that I need to hear, but beyond that, yeah. I feel like if you searched on YouTube, you could find <laughs> Probably. It I'm afraid to do so, though. That section also reminds me that it bothers me how liberally they use the word shaman. It's like anyone who is not a verbena or a chorister or a hermetic just is a shaman, apparently. So Yeah. I mean, that's getting into the, this was written by White Wolf in the 90s. Yeah, but even for that, it's a little bit... Oh yeah, they're not all doing spirit magic, right. I guess. So Maybe we should be glad they didn't talk about, quote-unquote, settling the new world. Yeah. Yeah. And in the sidebar, we have the rise of the Order of Reason with a whole bunch of information and little points that, again, seems like they would be important, but we don't get much about them. Like, the notion of the English Civil War, I would say, having been raised in the U.S. school system, the fact that England had a civil war is probably lost on most American readers. Yeah. I mean, my first thought was, like, which one? I was about but, to say. But, <laughs> <laughs> the one that didn't have somebody trying to call themselves a king or queen. Okay. Yeah. I I mean, this might be more of a thing for the end, but uh, I, I feel like this whole book missed a bit of a really good trick here where you could have talked quite a bit about how Britain, or England certainly, gradually evolved from a monarchy to a constitutional monarchy it is today, which basically means the monarchy has no power at all. Because it struck me when I read the original Changeling core book how much the Parliament of Dreams is basically the early Parliament as it was starting to curtail the powers of the monarch. Mm-hmm. And you can you can even then see how that history plays out. And it felt like this book really would have been a great opportunity to start exploring how that had affected the commoners that were left behind after the shattering to get to where they were so that when the she came back, you had a better idea of where they were coming from and where the commoners had gone through it all to get to. You almost I really want the English changelings to be looking across the Atlantic at Concordia and going, no, no, guys. We've done this before. Don't make the same mistakes. We can just look at mortal history and do something else. Well, also keep in mind, Concordia is more than just the US, which gets really... Con- I mean, Changely doesn't remember that either. That's but true. Not to mention that. Anyway, sorry. But do, do they actually cover what the political structure of Albion is anywhere? Um, when we get into the setting in chapter two, it goes a bit more into it. Actually, it goes quite a bit more into it. Okay. But before we get there, we have the reign of Victoria, which we were talking about this before recording. I've never fully understood why Victoria is such a landmark figure for the technocracy in the setting. I mean, I understand the Industrial Revolution was happening. There were a lot of changes socially and scientifically and politically. But how much of that was Victoria herself responsible for in the real world? How much of that was the British Empire? Like, Well, a fair bit, but... 
Yeah, it was definitely one piece of it, but like the rising German states into one Germany and the United States, like those were also big parts of the whole Industrial Revolution. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that Britain in its imperial capacity especially drove the Industrial Revolution as we commonly refer to it. Yeah, it definitely start, sparked, you know, yeah, yeah. The steam engine and all that stuff. And it was ahead of everybody else for so long and things like London being the largest city in the world for a while. So there yeah. was that moment. And I, and I do think it corresponds to Victoria's reign. But I mean, her as a person, did she have some proclivity for science that I'm just not educated on? I think when it comes to certain figures and in history, in particular Victoria, hmm. I think almost, and it's... <laughs> It's a slightly meta way of looking at it, but the fact that she is such a figurehead means that she should therefore become the driving force of that, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. If the consensus mm-hmm. of the empire, so to speak, is that Victoria is the head of what is driving this great empire forward, then by mage logic, and actually by changeling logic, by, by the dreaming logic, then yes, Victoria should be the one, whether she herself as a mortal human being could do that is almost irrelevant at that point. Mm -hmm. So I live in Canada and in the story of Canada, Victoria is a key legendary figure about the founding of the nation and this whole thing about why she picked Ottawa as the capital. And like, there's all this, like the politicians that they bring up in history class and all stuff are all like talking about how flawed all the politicians are. And then like Victoria is like the shining beacon it's, it's a very interesting thing. And then I look at like the technocracy thing and I just, in my head canon, the, uh, the seat of the technocracy should be in Ottawa because of all this. Hmm. I just wanted to get that out there. I'm all for it. As far as her actual facts is they asked her and maybe she sit, picked Ottawa because they wanted someone not local to pick the place hmm. for the capital because there was a lot of arguments, but Victoria day every May is like one of our national holidays all that being said, I still don't know that I'm fully on board with the statements that she went around manipulating the order of reason into forming the technocracy. No. <laughs> so, you know. No. Yeah. And she's also like, I know one thing I know that her reign had a lot of, and I get the impression that she maybe was for, was it was the, dis- she's actually was about this dis- the beginning of the dismantling of the British Empire. There was a lot of the British Empire were given more and more um, autonomy under her uh, reign. Well, it's not just Canada, a lot of the places. Yeah, but you also had the formalization of her imperium over India and then the scramble for mm-hmm. Africa at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So even though she might have been relinquishing some some hold on Canada and Australia, there were certainly other parts of the world where they were full steam ahead, pun mm-hmm. somewhat intended. Yeah. She was apparently a very good, a very savvy politician. Oh, I'm sure. From what I've gathered. Yeah. Until, until her husband died, and then that's where the austere Never Smiles Victoria came from. Which was actually quite sad. Which was actually quite early in her reign. Yeah. And then after that, she basically became secloistered and kind of lost all touch with the outside world. And I don't know. The, the stories around her are fascinating. So yeah, she, she was an active politician, right? When did it transition to that was not what the crown was, like the, the monarch was supposed to be doing? Um, afterwards, yeah, it's yeah. of a slowly sliding scale. That's the thing; is it just it's something that very much evolved over time, much like the whole parliamentary thing. Yeah, you know, the earliest examples when we 
when we get all excited about the Magna Carta as being the birth of democracy, well... That was the strengthening of the nobility, yeah. Yeah, for some landed men with lots of money, one could argue it was the first domino, perhaps, but, but that's, again, what I really would have loved to have seen this section do, or this whole chapter do, would be perhaps strip out most of the mage stuff and talk a bit more about how the dream of whether you call it democracy well the dream of rulership perhaps evolved through england and particularly with these very big now mythic figures of elizabeth i and queen victoria Um, i'm quite glad they do mention both of them because they are pivotal and they become myths and legends in and of themselves despite being historic beings and that really would have had a massive impact on um, the dreaming and how it evolved to what it is today with the conflict mm-hmm. between the High King and not having a High King. Yeah. Oh, and also getting into the uh, interesting bits of sidebar for the reign of Victoria sidebar, the third to last item is Victoria dies. Inner circle takes control. Yeah, but then it's two other things happen. <laughs> You're like, what? what? Yeah. Shouldn't that be a different sidebar? Well, and among those two other things is World War One, Fey retreat until war's end, which seems like such a throwaway. Mm-hmm. I would love yeah. to see and read more about the actual impact of both world wars, really, on the Fey population, especially because mm-hmm. later on, I think it's in maybe Book of Lost Houses, there's like a changeling scene set in World War Two. So Yeah. Yeah. If it was like most changeling men go through the forgetting or something, sure. But well, or, you know, large numbers of dreamers being slaughtered, you know? Yeah. World War One, I, I could have seen sort of like how, how do you look at the black death again world war one was utterly horrifying yes so you can see things like red caps and sluar perhaps gaining um uh i wouldn't say like not on the front lines no 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 no, not on the front lines but as yeah. that the, the nightmare and horror of what mm-hmm. was happening grew i could actually maybe see a red cap being on some of them they have this in kith book red cap if i remember correctly world war ii would have been would be quite a bit different. Yeah. World War Two had a very different feel to it, and that's why they make so many movies about it. <laughs> yeah, and that yeah, and that World War Two starts with the Great Depression in 1920, which first of all, what? <laughs> and yeah. Then the first Labour government, then the first scheduled TV, then World War Two, and it ends like in 1956 with the Suez Crisis. What? <laughs> Your head spins. You do. <laughs> it's like someone put well, not a history book in a blender, but just sort of. Yeah, I, I... it's more of a history scrapbook. Yeah. But it, it also, yeah, it also implies that that the Roaring Twenties didn't exist in this setting. I imagine they're trying to kind of set it up as you know, obviously causes and lead ups and whatever. And it's important to remember, you know, nineteen twenty was certainly not a great year for Germany economically, yeah. and a lot of the other countries were still economically yeah. shattered. So even though it wasn't depression, the Roaring Twenties, I honestly don't know how roaring they were in Europe. I don't think they would have been especially roaring that I know. I mean, at the very mm. least, I know we didn't have Prohibition, which was a large part of what made them roaring in the uh, U- U.S. Mm. There apparently was like still a lot of stuff happening. Like There was a lot of parties, at least, and <laughs> jazz clubs and cocktail bars in the U.K. as well. I mean, I know that from Downton Abbey, but... Yeah. <laughs> Another good bit of media. It's on my list. I do have a list when we uh, get to that. At the risk of being pushy, like maybe we should get through the history. Yeah. <laughs> yes, let's do that. Yeah, sorry. Um, oh, so yeah, then now we'll... I'm going to get really annoyed again. With the War of Ivy? That the War of Ivy? 
possibly what should have been the biggest section in a changeling supplement on Britain, and they basically tell you nothing about it. It got a paragraph and a half. True. <laughs> but they basically just The say, she won. The, the end. she show up, and no one was that bothered. Yeah. I, oh, I just... Yeah, because it's not like, I don't know, all that stuff about constitutional monarchies rising had anything to do with England, right? Oh, I just... The way they just hand wave the whole thing just really... Oh, ah. And then the High King David rules the Fae from the fortress Taranar, implying what he's High King of England? <laughs> uh, yep, never understood that either. Exactly what does High King David being High King mean? Is he High King of Concordia? Or is he... Yes. Like, they love to say High King of the Fae, but how many Fae are we including in this? So they, they specifically, in somewhere in the setting chapter, if we come across it, I'll point it out, but there is specifically a mention that there is no High King in Albion. So mm. similar to when we talked about Court of All Kings for Ireland, even though David is recognized as a High King, he is not the High King of anywhere in Britain. Mm. They do not currently have one. The position is vacant. Then we get some random modern times bits. There's information about the harbingers of Avalon who want to bring back the idea of, I guess, Britannia specifically, like that notion of what England and Britain as a whole can and should be. So that sort of late imperial idea, because they think it'd be a utopia. I do love that at the end, the technocracy has basically become James Bond and the Kingsman, and they're the yeah. guys. It's one of the things that I really love with this book. Um, the idea that the, the the big bad guys that are normally out there with their killer robots. No, no, in England, we're far more civilized than that. We've got James Bond walking around in a tux, and uh, that's that's the bad guy you have to deal with. But not really, because he's just far too polite to do much. Uh, also, there's only 12 of them. So, yes. <laughs> so it's MI6, the technocracy version, but only 12 people. Yep. There is also the note at the end here, so this this might speak a little bit more to the sort of structure and voice of the chapter, that Sam Hain, the narrator, is from America. So therefore, it's sort of doubly... Yeah, if you're going to write a book about... You want to talk about changeling history in England, and you're written by a... And you're a mage fan who's American, it's probably good to write your character who's saying the story is a mage yeah. from... Give yourself that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I want to just pose a general question at the end of this chapter, which is what is the importance of history and tradition as themes in Changeling and Mage, I guess, as opposed to memory and lore, which I think we can distinguish as different things? Yeah, I think memory and lore is the important part for both games. Mm. If you're talking, if you're con contrasting it with like what actually happened, but if you're talking about like history as the story of what happened then obviously that's very important yeah i think i'd have again liked to have seen more of those two things held in tension with each other in this book particularly because as you've said english history is so well documented and at the same time so mythologized mm -hmm. it would have been fascinating to see more of this is what was happening in history, and this is how the Dreaming has reacted to it, and this is how the Dreaming has reacted to it since, particularly coming full circle with the stories of King Arthur. How has that shaded and coloured the way changelings see their history? Well, how English changelings see their history in England. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just feels like they, they missed a bit of a trick there. 
because they wanted to talk more about mages. I think a different framing device, if you look at um, Guide to the Technocracy, the Mage Supplement, that has in its history section multiple authors who disagree with each other. (laughs) And I think the same amount of text, but written that way, might have worked better. Mm. Like you have one changeling and two very different mages, or one mage and two very different fae or something, and they're all giving the history, and it's like not there's very little connecting them. There's a lot of disagreement. That might have worked better to me. Do you know where you see that the most, I think, in World of Darkness is the revised clan books for Vampire? Because the history sections are always kind of presented as, oh, the elders of the clan are presenting the history to the young ones, but there's mm-hmm. almost always two or more of them with wildly different opinions. Mm-hmm. And I do, I agree with you that that's useful at least. But I suspect also, I mean, there are events that kind of cross the literal geographic borders between England, Wales, and Scotland. And I'm going to have to read through the other sections to verify this, but I think that you'll get very different opinions in those mm-hmm. three sections. So yeah, maybe across the three books that works. The books that within yeah. this book. I just found it surprising, kind of like you were saying, Andrew, there's so much that's mythologized that isn't mentioned. Like Robin Hood does not come up once. Oh my goodness. I think yeah. he's mentioned in one of the sidebars briefly, but yeah. not at all. Yeah. Hadrian's Wall gets like a brief mention. They do talk more about that in the Scottish section, uh, the Scottish chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from the historical side, so this is my segue into talking about chapter two. The opening epigraph is from Shakespeare, who, again, landmark figure in English history. And in the history section, there's a single word dedicated to him, which is from 1564 to 1616. And one of the sidebars, it just says Shakespeare. So <laughs> there's basically nothing about London in this whole book. There On is the in history. chapter two. But in history, oh, yeah. there's yeah, nothing. There's, London's there's nothing. got a weird history that's mythologized, yeah. too. That's but another it's, one. It's yeah. not there at all. That's what I mean. It's like... Yeah. And that's a place Americans have heard of. <laughs> one, one would hope, yes. Yeah. Anyway, chapter two. Oh, boy. So my primary source for understanding how British politics works anymore is watching The Crown. So... I don't know, how how accurate is that, or indeed the rest of these first few pages that kind of just give us a general overview of English life? Oh, I'm going to tirade again, and I apologize. Go for it. The, um, I'll start with the easy bit. On the, the next page, where it's got the section on the media, I think anyone can read that and go, yeah, that's 25 years out of date. Just, just <laughs> mm-hmm. cut that bit out entirely. At least it was written. It was right for. The, it wasn't so bad for the time. That's so. true. Yeah, I think that was fairly accurate for the time. So if, if your game is set 25 years ago, you're okay with that. <laughs> the section on the weather, similar. Last summer, it got much hotter than 72 yeah. degrees, so that's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. That That's going to be true of any Changeling book written in the 90s anywhere, though. Yeah. <laughs> but then we have to talk about politics and how much this section annoyed me. Section is a strong word. It's barely three sentences. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I guess I'll summarize with with what I've said in chapter one. I think this would have been such a great opportunity, given the way Changeling the Dreaming is structured as a sort of feudal society struggling against feudalism and trying to come out of it. They really missed an opportunity to explore that in English history. And it's abundantly clear in the political section here that they also don't quite know how the English system works. To be fair, I don't entirely understand the English system. It almost, depending if you read it, I'm not entirely sure whoever wrote that realizes that there's no direct election for the Prime Minister. Yeah. Or the fact that the Crown has basically no real power, 
the person that wrote it definitely shows that they've got a bit of a bugbear against monarchy, which, mm-hmm. you know, fair, that's a valid stance to take, but they don't seem to get how the English monarchy works today. Anyway, that that's my little side tangent, although <laughs> there is then a sidebar on the Kingdom of Albion, which is going to set me off again. But speaking of sidebars, the one on magic in England, it raises the question for me, and I feel like maybe we've talked about this somewhere before. I'm having deja vu. But what are your thoughts on places that are like inherently magical? Because that seems to be the theme here is that, oh, we're dedicating so much to talking about these different sites and to some extent making this a mage crossover book because England is just inherently full of magic as though other places in the world aren't. And I'm not sure, how do we feel about that? Just in general, places having more or less inherent magic to them. I think you could reskin it. The way magic does it in general, I, no, I don't think some places are more magical than others. I think that's... But you can have a place's magic is accessible to different groups in different ways. like Which we certainly get here. I mean, yeah. all the different splats, it seems to have a laissez-faire attitude towards each other. Yeah. If the culture's sort of tied to the place for a lot longer... Mm. having more things like in i don't know where you are or where i am there's different cultures that have been here different amounts of time some of them a lot longer than others and they have very different relationships with the place yeah which means they should have different magical connections i guess england Mm. is also not just people who've been there forever but there's more continuity of culture there maybe i guess it depends what you mean by magic and i think this sidebar in particular then suffers from it being a crossover book because mm-hmm. if we're talking about changelings specifically then i think i'd say i think that yes there are places that are inherently more magical than others as in geographical settings not necessarily like england is more magical than america necessarily but that would correlate in changeling that would mean there are some places that have more glamour to them more dream more inspiration well, no, more more myth and story. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So I think much like with certain historic figures we've talked about, I think there is a lot of England, but for better and for worse, England has had a lot of mythologizing done of it. So I could see why some places in England, not all of it, but certain places would have more glamour to them. But if yeah. we're talking, but that's specifically looking at it as a changeling looking at it as a mage i don't know that i can comment on that as well i mean there's things like nodes which i feel like would prove the point that some places have more magic than others but again i guess Mm. it depends on what you mean by magic well and weirdly i think the geography section gives us more history than the history section yeah very little of which is mage history like there's references to oh this mage lives here this mage does this but I feel like the historical tidbits that we get throughout this chapter are kind of more pertinent to changelings. Yes, very much so. Perhaps we should dive into them. I do also want to point out, in case anyone didn't notice, that there is a map of the kingdoms at the back of the book so that we have a visual reference for, which we can include in the show notes, I guess. So we have five kingdoms. Kingdom of Roses, Kingdom of Chalk, Kingdom of Mist, Kingdom of Smoke, formerly known as Kingdom of Wool, and the Kingdom of Heather which constitute the English kingdoms. So I guess we'll start with roses, which is (laughs) ill-defined. London and environs. East Anglia, the home counties, and the so-called heart of England. And it's that last piece that, what does that really mean? To whom? 
Yeah, I don't entirely disagree with this map. I don't entirely agree with the map either, if I'm honest. I think Roses should probably have extended a bit further south. Hmm. And I'm not quite sure why. Well, I guess I, guess I well, see Well, this could why. also be late 90s versus today. That's very true. Like if it's the London and basically anywhere in London's cultural sphere, that would have changed over time. Yeah, they're roughly correct, I think. I think I'd slightly wiggle the borders around, but they're close enough that I think they yeah. make sense. Something that has come up before in reference to Concordia, and I think is maybe mentioned somewhere in here, is that the borders are not fixed. Yeah. And it's when you have a map, it's easy to think of the borders as fixed, but there are references to like the rulers kind of pushing at each other's territory here and there. Mm. Which makes sense, since lines on a map are literally well borders yeah exactly the imaginary lines so yeah. yeah and it's not like the she ever went through the treaty of westphalia to iron out what's a nation state or something yeah they don't have controlled borders i want to highlight something that i like and wish that there was more about and something that really aggravates me about this section um there is a sidebar on the monarchy and the fey oh, which kind of yeah i mean to your point well, it's not great, but the <laughs> nugget that I extract from it that I like is this sort of through line of the connection between the monarchy, the land, and the fey, because mm. you have things like the myth of the Fisher King, or the monarch is the land to some extent. And I really like that. I like that as a dream that the nobility would lean into hard, and that would have actual repercussions in the dreaming. So it's almost... I wish that there was more on that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. What I dislike about this section as a whole is I feel as though almost they made a checklist of things they wanted to include and wrote full write-ups of those without talking about anything else. To some extent, I think you kind of have to pick and choose what you're going to write about because there's so much, but some of the choices seem odd. Yeah. Like in the Kingdom of Roses, we get London. Lots of London. That's about and we get Oxford and Cambridge. Which, I mean, to be fair, th those are pretty major parts within the um, Kingdom of Roses as they've written it. They, they yeah. do give, one, what, three pages to London? Yeah, but then it's things like, you could do, frankly, a whole book on London, which Vampire has done. Someone has on the vault, I believe. For Changeling? Yeah, um, give me Shelter. Oh, okay. It's set in the, I want to say in the 60s or 70s i think yeah 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 and it's definitely set in london i've been meaning to pick it up but yes yeah, so someone has in fact done an entire source book just on uh, well, there you go just on london so we get like a page about gun laws and then we get westminster abbey tower of london and highgate cemetery all three of which feel like they'd be more well suited for wraith <laughs> rather than I mean, maybe not Westminster Abbey, but like Tower of London and Highgate Cemetery, I feel like, hmm, those are some ghosting grounds. Highgate Cemetery, it definitely has a lot of dreams around it, but I don't think it needed sure. quite as much as they spilt, uh, ink as they spilt on it. Um, yeah. We get Guilty Pleasures, which is like a secret society of mages and fae and various historical art figures. And then Two Right, which I actually like because it's a red cap run punk bar, which is cool. I was very happy that they did touch on punk. I don't think they touched on punk enough mm. because that very, it did feel like, oh yeah, we should mention this. It breaks, I think, in a very good way from the 
stereotype of the very polite. I think later on somewhere they 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 talk about how the English are just terribly polite, and you know, would you you won't know if they're upset with you because they're just too polite to say. And I'm like, you've not met someone from the punk scene or. <laughs> heck just someone who lives out east in london or, um, or chavs yeah it's uh a great risk of treading on other, opening other cans of worms you're ignoring whole classes of people within england by skipping that whole subcultures that anyway yeah it's uh so i'm really glad that two right was in there with the exception of what they talk about with the npc that runs it later on in the npc section mm. a, yeah that yeah. was slightly less good but um but at least there's some in there yeah. Overall, though, I feel like this would help me if I were running a session set in one of these five places, not London. That's kind of yeah. what I mean. So if there's a trod that goes directly to the Tower of London and you don't go anywhere else in the city, great. I did like the Oxford versus Cambridge rivalry cast as, what is it, technocracy versus etherites. That was yes. a nice little uh, thing. With some knockers thrown in for the mix just yeah. to remind us <laughs> this is a change in Oh, and there's also Windsor. Two brief paragraphs on Windsor. Yeah, it feels a bit like they do get sort of a bit fixated, sort of tunnel vision on very specific locations and don't, Yeah, like you said, it'd be very good if you want to run a game around those areas, but if you wanted sort of a more general scope uh, for running a game in London, not necessarily that helpful. Yeah. And now that we're on page 37 and 38, we might as well segue into the Kingdom of Chalk, which is the southern coast, including Cornwall. I am curious... Oh about the inclusion of Cornwall. I would imagine Cornwall would demand to be its own realm, but... Yeah, Cornwall is practically its own country anyway. I'm not quite sure why they lumped it in with Kingdom of Chalk. If you were going to lump it in with anyone, you'd put it in with the Kingdom of Mist, frankly, mm. which is my absolute favourite one, and I can't wait till we get to them. <laughs> yeah, I, they did Cornwall dirty in this book, and I'm not quite sure why. If I was changing the borders around and doing a Isle of the Mighty Twenty... I think I'd have extended the Kingdom of Roses south and made the Kingdom of Chalk just kind of a duchy. So I'm not sure why it's its own thing. And then made Cornwall part of either its own thing or part of the Kingdom of Mist. I have heard suggestions that Albion as a name, because it's related to Alba, the word for white in Latin, and it comes from the cliffs. Because from the perspective of continental Europeans, that's like the thing that signifies England is those the white cliffs in the distance. Maybe that and having the chalk downs and whatever, they just felt they had to tilt at it. I don't know. But yeah. I can I can get behind that. This is another thing, like Cornwall cultural revival, from what I know about it, was picking up steam at this point. Mm -hmm. Was still picking up steam, but slowly but surely. It wasn't as big a deal. It became a more known about in this century like not that, that long after this book so i think that might be yeah, part yeah, of what's yeah. going on here certainly from an american perspective <laughs> this book definitely becomes a bit of a time capsule mm. um i don't want to call it dated it is kind of dated but england has definitely changed since this book was written yeah hopefully for the better i'd like to think but, um... well so for the kingdom of chalk we have brighton and a couple places located within it Canterbury and its religious history, and then Tintagel, the birthplace of Arthur in relation to Cornwall, which again, sort of disappointingly little about Arthuriana. I do like that they included Tintagel. Um, I have been there. The problem is, is that we know that it's not a real yeah. <laughs> like, Arthurian place, so it, 
it's basically the original tourist trap it is meant to evoke the idea of the arthurian legend yeah. um, which is cool and it's a really fun place to visit but it's i can see why the changelings would turn their nose up at it <laughs> and then we get the kingdom of mist yes <laughs> which again disappointingly little about arthur True. in relation to glastonbury but but this is the longest of the kingdom sections i mean it has the most text and the least art i think and it is hands down i think this is the of all the kingdoms i think this is the only one i've ever really tried to use in a game mm. or taken inspiration of and i think it really captures the feeling of that part of the country as well yeah but i'll i'll, I'll let us go through it we'll... <laughs> we have bath which i have actually been to it's one of the places in england i've been and i really like how they handle it here i think that actually I, I agree with you this is probably my favorite kingdom of the kingdoms we get because they really struck a balance between the historical and the legendary with the modern and practical for running a game and they covered a lot of bases of a lot of different they drew on a lot of different things that would interest a variety of changelings or mages as characters so bath with its sacred well and whatnot glastonbury with a whole bunch of sites described in detail this might be a thing that would be different in C20. I'm not saying it would be a positive or whatever, but it's like, I don't even see any throwaway lines about the Glastonbury Music Festival, which is like... There, there is one. Oh, there is one? Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, or they call it the Arts Festival, which is a very generous statement. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it feels like it needs a little comment. I didn't see it. But yeah, it's, it's somewhere in there. I forget where exactly. And they do have a sidebar about tourism versus tailcraft. And kind of yes. Split view on tourism, which I feel like this is a good point to put it. Yeah, which is something that we've talked about in relation to other setting books. I think San Francisco in particular, we really talked about it in that episode. But having it in connection with Stonehenge in particular and Avebury is really important. Mm. The way they sum up Stonehenge is perfectly accurate. <laughs> Again, one of the places I've been to. I did quite like Avebury as well because you could actually walk up and sit on the stones. So. I was a little bit, not dismayed, but like, there's no mention of the Cotswolds, there's no mention of Bristol, and I mean, mm. this would have been, I, I imagine, kind of like as Trip Hop and Banksy were like really taking off, so <laughs> it's kind of like, oh. Yeah, Bristol, it surprises me that they included Brighton and didn't talk right. about Bristol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do understand them wanting to talk about Glastonbury and Bath. Yeah. And Stonehenge, of course. Yeah, and of course Stonehenge, yeah. And they do have a full-page sidebar almost on the Glastonbury Compact and its details, so that's like a story waiting to be incorporated into a chronicle. More history than the first chapter. Yep. More changing history, anyway. And vampire history. <laughs> so. Yep. So then we have the Kingdom of Smoke, and I think my favorite thing about the Kingdom of Smoke is how they talk about its transition from the sort of bucolic Kingdom of Wool into this banality-soaked hellhole, because that's a theme. Yeah. This one is written up very well. It's not a place I would want my character to ever go to and hang out in, but yes, it's very well described. I think uh, if you wanted to run a changeling game where you really wanted to emphasize the battle between glamour and banality, mm. I think this would be a really good place to, to set it. So I, I used to live just outside of Hull, which is in the Kingdom of Smoke. And I do remember sort of... <laughs> The architecture of Hull back then, I'll say I've gathered it's changed a bit since then, but at least at the time, I just remember this sort of brutalism at its peak, 
just everything feels like it's been had been switched to monochrome. The Humber estuary is just a it's a mud based estuary, so the water <laughs> is just always brown. It just feels like colour has been leached out. And of course, I mean this was through the eyes of a kid at the time, but I if you put that run that through the lens of the world of darkness and throw in towns that were booming industrial centers once upon a time when England actually did its own industry. Mm-hmm. And now they are just these sort of weird, derelict, almost ghost towns because there's no industry any- there anymore. Yeah, and yeah. it, the Kingdom of Smoke would be a fantastic setting, I think, for a darker themed changeling game. Yeah. And they are quick to point out that it's not all cities in pollution because you have like the beetles coming out of the Rapool and the Albion Well is located in the midst of the kingdom. There's so many typos in this section, though, I have to point out. <laughs> yeah. Lord Greenlands is indeed a member of the Shadow Court with allegiance to House Alil. His wife, who most believe to be of House Fiona, is actually a satyr with ties to House Lianian. <laughs> Get the names of the houses in your own game correct, please. The Smokelands also seem to be crawling with Dante and a Copper Griffin, who's one of my favorite Chimera, even though it's a Benal Chimera. Woven out of hair, no less. Yep. Lastly, we get the Kingdom of Heather, the North Country. So we get York, and we get Whitby, and the Principality of Tears, which is basically the Lake District. I really liked the origin story that the lakes and the rivers and the mirrors were all filled by this dragon who flew around crying because she had lost all of her fae friends to the Shattering, and she was about to have to leave Earth as well. Mm. That was really cute. I liked that. It surprised me a little bit that we had to get this far into the book for any mention of a dragon, which in hindsight, it suddenly occurs to me, there's nothing about St. George and the dragon, or does Wales maybe talk a bit more about that? Wales does, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There is a mention of St. George in that not-quite-cockney quote, I believe, from page 38. But otherwise, yeah. So I need to ask the British perspective. How, if at all, has Downton Abbey changed popular opinion about York and what it signifies? Or Yorkshire? (laughs) I have a terrible dark confession to make, and that's that I have not actually watched any Downton Abbey. Neither has Maggie Smith, so you're in good company. Aha! Good old Maggie Smith. I would imagine it's probably had some impact on it. If nothing else, I suspect it's romanticized the, the kind of the manor house, of which we have many lying around the countryside. See, for me, the Secret Garden film from the early 90s was my first exposure to Maggie Smith and manor houses. So, uh... I, I think uh, if you want to talk in 2022, I think Bridgerton's taken over from Downton Abbey as the influence in this area. Has it really? Uh... I mean, I, I know it's popular, but has it really permeated the pop culture to the same degree yet? The TikTok? Well, any, any uh, Wilders or Younger, sure. Just the she stories. I think I think uh, Bridgerton Bridgerton has kind of railroaded the the Jane Eyre crowd and the yeah. sort of Regency, the arranged marriage folks. So. Yeah, it's 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 more st- directly she Downton Abbey's more generally applicable to Changeling. I haven't watched Bridgerton, yeah. so I don't know. See, I think if you want a bit of Changeling inspiration for Upstairs Downstairs, you want to watch the movie Gosford Park. Yes, one hundred percent agree. Um, I think that would be the best one, personally. But um, I was going to say, something I really love with The Kingdom of Heather is actually the very first, I think it's the very first bit, talking about the 
Lord, uh, Lord Ormond. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that was one of the, I think this is the most changeling thing in the whole book, and I, I just love that they included this. It makes me want to run games in the Kingdom of Heather. He's, he's this troll who's doing the best he can and is actually a pretty decent lord, but he's married to a mortal who they've implied they've tried to enchant her and they just can't. And this, everyone's worried he's going to basically just turn away from the dreaming and to, to be with his wife. And it's just this wonderful, tragic love story that I feel like really is something we don't see enough of in Changeling. Yeah, he's probably my favorite character in the otherwise not so inspiring characters chapter that we're about to get to. Because <laughs> so, that's absolutely a good hook for a character is like someone you're in love with who just doesn't get you no matter what. And all of your friends are like, why are you even with her? And it's like, because I love her. But yeah. Yeah, it, all, it also seems like the kind of thing that if the PCs got involved, they would do stuff that's very much bad ideas. Yes. Lots of fun stories. <laughs> and then they'd piss off the Lord. So political yeah. drama. As a general question for this chapter, again, I just want to pose this to both of you. If anything, are there any sort of qualities of the land itself, of the country, that just seem really changeling-y? Because we do have a sidebar on ley lines, but that feels like a cop-out to me. So I don't know. The moors, the forests, the rivers, is there anything that's more suited as a setting for changeling than other games if the answer is no that's fine too <laughs> <laughs> i suppose it somewhat depends on what sort of changeling game you're looking to run like i said i think well previously i think the smoke lands are actually an excellent setting for changeling uh, mm. perhaps more so than a lot of the stuff in the core book specifically because it has that really stark sense of um, banality versus glamour you might get some of that in some of the post-industrial cities in the US, but I think the US culture is generally much more optimistic optimistic and go get them than the English one is. Yeah. And I think when you get everything I've seen in the US like that, it seems much more the population just drops very significantly. Yeah. Whereas in England you just you you're just sort of there. You're sort of stuck there. Or maybe not even stuck there. Even worse than being stuck there, because at least then it's a sense of trapped and trying to fight your way out. It's a sense of you've just sort of settled. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, I from from that standpoint, I think it does provide some settings that perhaps other ones don't. And the exact opposite end of the spectrum from that, I think the Kingdom of Mist is just wonderful. I forgot to point out the sidebar on the Shining Mists was something I did really love in that section as well. Because <laughs> mm. it's almost like, I don't know if either of you have played Ravenloft, but this, the conceit of the mists drifting through the plains, abducting adventurers into Ravenloft, this almost seemed like the anti-version of that, where it's like, these glowing mists, that might just take you to Arcadia. Like, the Kingdom of Mist is this place where magic is still very much almost alive still. Yeah. Whereas the Kingdom of Smoke, just a little bit north, is almost like the graveyard of magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that they had that in there, and I'd love to have seen a bit more of that, actually. Yeah. So then chapter three, beginning with a pin-up of um, Wayland Smith. Um, <laughs> I have thoughts and feelings about that picture, but let's move on. So there's an opening right up that indicates that the Celian and Unseelie populations are pretty balanced, with a shadow court presence driven by the Green Lances in Nottingham. And after that, I just was not really inspired by this chapter. 
there's so many interesting characters referenced with interesting stories in the first two chapters that don't even appear here. They include, so they've got the Chancellor who's nominally running the Kingdom of Roses and thus the Kingdom of Albion in theory, but he's a, he's fairly forgettable. He's an NPC, he's a background NPC. Yeah, he's, he's, he's High King David, kind of. <laughs> yeah. He's as interesting as High King David, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Mary Crimson, who runs the two right, love the idea, but then they say that she's 12 years old. Yeah. Which was just a bit cringe, particularly when they go to great lengths of explaining that, oh, but, you know, they totally buy that she's 17. I'm like, eh, moving on swiftly. Mm-hmm. Lord Berwyn Lindell, who's the most Gwydion that ever Gwydion to Gwydion. And that's it for Roses. Like, there's so much potential for London. <laughs> yeah, how do, how do you make yeah. London boring for a right. changeling game? exactly. In the Kingdom of Chalk, I do like how there's the lesbian couple that owns... Is it a bar? I can't remember. Yeah, that they stole from a vampire. Which is great. I like yeah. I like that. Wait, is that two Seelie characters who are a lesbian couple in a cha- first Dead Changeling book? It is. Yes. Oh, wow. I think that's the first. The Seely part. They're the, they're the counterparts to Hector and Sam the Clam yep. from San Francisco. So then the Kingdom of Mist. And okay, this is a little better. So yeah. I love the monarchs for this. I love the whole concept. Yeah, I, I think they give them just enough character to be interesting, but not so much that you couldn't fit them into your game how you wanted them to. Yeah. I would love to see an updated version of the book just to see what happened to these two Um, they're both childlings here the summer queen is a she and the winter king is a knocker they absolutely adore each other they trade off the seasonal rulership just like in the olden days i think they're great (laughs) i believe they're still listed as the rulers in the c20 core book because they really didn't bother updating any of them so maybe they're wilders now yeah gosh at this point they could be grumps well, and C20 changed that too, though. So. Well, or they could they could still be childlings, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then Megan, who's one of the very few Shirain who we get in the books. And I do like that it says, No stats have been included for Megan. Assume that this ancient fae can command all arts and realms at maximum or near maximum power if the need arises. Badass. So she runs this like little, basically the beating heart of England, this freehold that has a flame that can light up all the other bale fires around the world. She's got trods that go to, uh, where is it? The, it goes to Taranar in, um, in the US, and it comes out in the vegetable patch in her garden. Yes, one of the many, many trods yeah. that she has. I just love that they've made the, like, the most powerful character in all of England is basically a hobbit. Yep. She's the, the quintessential powerhouse. The, the... Tolkien would be proud. Do they give her kith? Bogan. It is Bargain? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she's a hobbit. Superman meets Bilgo, Bilbo Baggins. Meets Galadriel. <laughs> and then we have a random satyr named Celia. Yeah, so. yeah, I don't know where she came from. <laughs> it's like, oh, right, her. Yeah. yeah they, they always do that in these, though. It's like, let's just throw in a character that has no connection to anything. Yep. Then Kingdom of Smoke. I like Lord Davy. Maybe partly because he reminds me a bit of my dad, which I find a bit strange, mm. but I also kind of like that. I'm not sure why then Lord Greenlance. I, for the longest time, could have sworn he was a she. I'm not quite sure why he's an issue or issue, sorry. 
It's mentioned that he is in House Elu and head of the Shadow Court. He does not have title, certainly. Yeah. It feels like it would have made more sense thematically for him to be a she, since he's sort what? of scheming against... Real hey, wait, do, do we have any NPCs in this book who have, like, mortal titles? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah, like, that's, that's people just... in the House of Lords, you mean? Yeah, or just... Well, there's a lot of nobility that aren't in the House of Lords. Yeah. Yes. Like, no, they... I, don't, I don't think we do. I don't think... That feels like a waste. Yeah. Probably they'd have to invent one, because using an actual title would be awkward. Not that it couldn't be done. I mean, there's a lot of titles that are just gone. Well, and famously, Lord Wessex in Shakespeare in Love, I think, was one that Prince William liked so much that he asked for it to be a title or something, like, <laughs> something like that. And then they don't include um, Lady Greenlance, right? Her, I'd like, be interested in. I mean, yeah. having a Leon and Sater, I'm like, let's let's see what's up with that. But we'll just skip over the use of the slur in Lord Mil- Wilmeron's write up. Yeah, yeah. And a puka named Billy, who's a goat puka. That's a rude. That's a... And they never once make reference to the fact that a goat puka could pretend to be a satyr. Mm, truth. They do call him, he thinks of himself as a ladies' man. And I'm like, you're so close to having, the, just have him try to lie and tell everyone that he's actually a satyr and then be really bad at it. I do like it says that he fails at being a ladies' man because occasionally his creepy slew of friend just kind of pops up behind him. Yeah. <laughs> Worst wingman ever. Jared Slua. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have Lady El... I don't know if it's meant to be Welsh like Elendil or it's a Tolkien send up with Elendil or what, but she is the host of the Tailcraft contest that is the frame narrative for chapter one. So good for her. Yeah. And then we get some mages. And I... (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Vicky Choi, it is like every Orientalist stereotype you could possibly imagine shoehorned into a single character description. And it is, I mean, it is impressive <laughs> how much they do that. And there's Mitchell Savoy. Is he supposed to be as absolutely creepy as he's coming across? Like, was that intention, do you think? I mean, he runs guilty pleasures, so... Yeah. Okay. He's sort of like the quintessential repressed English... Noble. Okay. I, was, I was slightly worried he was like not, and then that would have been really bad. But yeah. <laughs> not intended that way. But and he's another case of a mage in a changeling book with Arite six, which is quite powerful and rare, with dismal spheres. <laughs> so, yeah. But at least he's not fortune telling in a bungalow like what's her name in Shadows on the Hill. So Yeah, it's like Arite eight, highest sphere two. Yeah. Yep. And that's it for statted mages. I mean, we get a brief write-up about the technocracy in the Nefandi, which doesn't really give much detail except to say yeah. that they're out there. I'm not a fan of these takes on the Nefandi. And the... Yeah. I do think it's interesting, though, that they note the technocracy's hold over England is only surpassed in some respects by its control over Japan. Because the implication there, I guess, is that sort of like formal society buttoned up Mm -hmm. you know nepotistic almost culture that runs things and with things like the rise of cctv and whatnot in england i'm not sure where i want to follow that line of thought but it's going places you know (laughs) i i can think of countries i'd put ahead as being quintessentially technocracy but same yeah i also I think it's because they keep coming back to it. I slightly have issue with the fact that they seem to have this idea that 
every single aspect of England is prim and proper mm-hmm. and then completely ignore like again they barely mention the punk movement or mm. like yeah there's no red caps mentioned in Manchester yeah it just it seems like their whole basis for the technocracy I, I like the idea that the technocracy thinks they run the country yeah mm-hmm. when in actuality no have you been to Glastonbury Festival or something you're, you're not in control <laughs> No one's in control. No. Not to mention the fact that there's a whole bunch of prodigals running around as well, which is the last page of this chapter. And they all just politely ignore each other. Yes. There's a picture on page 68. What's going on there? That's one of the guards outside of Buckingham Palace with the tall fluffy hat standing in the guard box. And apparently there's a werewolf just chilling out on top of the box. There's a note that King Albion and Mithras, the fourth generation Ventru who essentially dominated vampiric life in England for 2,000 years, met every other week to play chess more than a century ago. Okay. Hmm. I do like that mummies get their own shout-out, though. That's nice. Because <laughs> this was right yeah. around the time when Mummy 2nd Edition came out. So, And then Fomori for some reason. Oh, they have to have Fomori. I guess so, yeah. Oh, but there's nothing about how we don't, we're confused by the name. Yeah. They'd sorted it out by this point, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> and then weirdly, the Selkies thrown in with werewolves. Okay. So that rounds out chapter three and book one and the England section. Overall thoughts? This is definitely a Changeling first edition book with some mage crossover. See, I was going to call it a mage second edition book wearing Changeling clothing. <laughs> <laughs> it gets more Changeling as you go, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I just find this this whole book one a bit of an emotional roller coaster it can't quite decide where it's going or what it's doing but it's very enthusiastic about everything of the books where would you rate it on the scale of 90s white wolf books written by americans about another country i mean that that pretty much sums it up doesn't it yeah <laughs> i don't think there's any scale involved <laughs> it's just... I mean, I've seen I'll, them do worse jobs. I think. Yeah, that's yeah. Fair. I'll give them this. They've they've really tried. They've clearly gone down whatever the equivalent of a Wikipedia rabbit hole was. The aptly named Encyclopedia Britannica, perhaps. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you think maybe it was like someone who was a tourist in England for like maybe even a month? Yes, possibly. I could see that. I think they went to Glastonbury and Bath and those three specific places in London and maybe Hadrian's Wall yeah. and the Lake District. It, they went camping for a night. Like, I think all of those places that are given detail. And they might, have, they might even had, like, an English friend, like, living yeah, in... Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, living. yeah. But that's that's what I was saying before, is, like... And I, I want to give credit where credit's due. They were certainly under a deadline. They were freelance writers, and then there were multiple people working on the book. So you had to cut your losses with something as massive as England as mm-hmm. a topic. But I don't know that the right way out of that was what I perceive to be making a checklist of places that you have the barest of experience with and spinning them into these like massive stories that you can't really break them down and use the pieces that you want in a game. It's just like these big tales yeah. that you'd have to drop entire into your story. Yeah, and I, I feel like I could write about a place I don't know very much about and maybe make it more usable even if locals would absolutely go this is you've never heard of Mm -hmm. this place even i don't yeah i don't think it does a great job of saying what you can do with this in a game i compare it to something like freeholds and hidden glens where even though Mm -hmm. the locations were much more specific 
there was such depth and flexibility to the stories and the characters involved that you could go oh, in a yeah. lot of directions. Yeah, that had a chapter about my neighborhood that I grew up in. Yes. Was, and somebody really hated it, but at least I could tell he was there. He had been there. <laughs> I vaguely recall the Scotland section being a little bit better. So next mm-hmm. episode, we'll have to see. Yeah, I wonder how hard it would have been to find someone from England to write this chapter. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple listener questions that I think can be applied here. One is, why wasn't the UK considered a key part of the setting? And then, is there any lore that should have been covered but wasn't? So to the first one, and again, we were talking about this a little bit before, I think that it depends on what you mean by key part of the setting. Because even though the meta plot isn't centered on England, I mean, yeah, the initial creators and the authors were based in the US, so they focused on US themes. But if you move beyond that, if you go outside what the game meta plot itself involves, this book is longer and denser and more full of stuff than I think any other Changeling book. It's yeah. uneven, not all of it is useful, but there's vast areas of the planet that have never gotten a write-up. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, there's more with this book. If you take all the Changeling books, there's more here than there are in large sections of Concordia. And I don't just mean the Kingdom of Northern Ice. Like, yeah. all over, there, there's whole sections of Concordia. Like, I have no idea how to play a Concordia game that's not uh, New England. Or the South or California. <laughs> or the South or California, or maybe like a, some of the Midwest. Or Hawaii. Right? Like, or Hawaii, yeah. But I could, I, like, you want to play a game set in Kansas? Good luck. Colorado or anything? Seattle? Ironically, Maryland and DC barely get a mention. In fact, Maryland is mm-hmm. not mentioned yeah. at all, thinking about it, aside from being named as a, the Duchy of Chesapeake, which is not very creatively named. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but as to why it's not a key part of the world of... Like, it wasn't in the core book, but that's all the World of Darkness games. I've never seen any World of Darkness game that's, like, set in England. I guess maybe because it's Changeling there might be some question as uh, which is a an especially i mean most of the kith are of celtic or european origin yeah i can see why one might think why it might have in the past meant to have been more important to the meta plot i almost feel like it's appropriate that it's not though just as kind of england at one time was hugely influential across most of the world not necessarily in a good way but still influential but now is not. And just like the technocracy seemed to be sort of going, oh, we're not important anymore. Um, That seems like that might have been something that was meant to be part of that. Yeah. Something else that occurs to me as I'm looking at my bookshelf here is it presages, I think, a little bit um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman in the sense that it takes this folklore and these stories and these beings who... Mm-hmm. are familiar for Anglo-European American folks in the US and transposes those stories into the American context. So it's a very modernist kind of thing to do by taking it out of the quote old country and bringing it to the new. Yeah. And that is big on changeling. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, big part of it doesn't have to be, but I think the way changeling has been written at least initially. Yeah, the homeland, the 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 thing, Arcadia, maybe a section of Greece, but it's really just anywhere that's the home, like the place you can't go back to, and doesn't mm-hmm. maybe doesn't really exist, but very fair. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the mists covering up like 
your family's stories that came from somewhere else kind of all mished together. Yeah. I mean, we talked a bit about lore as well, but are there any other pieces that could or maybe should have been included here that weren't? I think actually a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost How everything. How many hours do we have left? Yeah. yeah. The War of Ivy? That seemed yeah. like it should have been fairly important. Yep. Queen Elizabeth, as you said. Pretty much any history of London. That seems... London's yep. got some weird stuff going on that maybe should be in the book. I think they could have drawn quite a nice line in, as I've said, I'd love to have seen the development of from monarchy to modern not monarchy and kind of a chance to dig into that a bit more um, and the dream of rulership. And on the flip side of that coin, with the three big figures in English history, the three biggest ones that I think stick out in most school kids' minds would be Queen Elizabeth I, Queen Victoria, and then Elizabeth II. They, yeah. You could have drawn a really interesting line through them and their ties to the sort of the dream of nobility. I, th- I think also just if you if you look up people in England today who are in the news, a lot of them have noble titles still. <laughs> and that was true in the 90s too. Yeah. And there's there's nothing about that really. Like there's royal talk, a little bit talk about royalty, nothing really about nobility. Yeah. So we have a shadow government for crying out loud. I mean, yes. how is that not mentioned? The point is there's some really interesting aspects <laughs> of yeah. uh, of politics that Changeling kind of touches on in the core book that really yeah. could have been explored in much more interesting ways in this book. Um, and I would have liked to have yeah. seen that. One yeah. more historical piece related to that that I would like to throw in is shortly after the shattering, you also had the Peasants' Revolt in the late 1300s, which is, mm. I think, often overlooked and maybe mm-hmm. isn't as historically significant. But like, if we're going to get into the weeds about the War of the Black Torque in 527 AD. We yeah. could have had a paragraph on the Peasants' Revolt and what that did to the post-departure of the Shi structure of nobility. Yeah, it could have just been mirrored. Yeah, you just have these commoners trying to take over. Yeah. So there's that. A bit more of Cornwall as well. Um, yeah. yeah. The Isle of Man doesn't even get touched. No. Or the Isle of Wight. Yeah. Well, aside from that... Last question from my side. What are some good media for getting one's mind around the idea of England? The book has a few nominees, but I actually don't think they're that great. So, I mean, I really, again, I mentioned Gosford Park already. I actually think some of Doctor Who, very much so, um, particularly ones that, that take place in England. I'm sure there's a lot of older ones that I'm not aware of that would be really good, but the ones that I do know of that would be good would be one set in England that have either the companion Donna Noble or um, Rose. Both of them, mm-hmm. when they're at home, you actually see a lot more of just regular England, but also through a lens of the fantastic being Doctor Who. So I think that's quite a good one. What about Martha? And Martha, yeah. I watched right. less of them, if I'm honest. Okay. How, how, um, would you, how would you feel about uh, some of the Blackadder things for the history section? No. <laughs> um, conflicted, I think. <laughs> Potentially, yeah, some of it could be quite good. But if we're going down that vein, then potentially uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Absolutely. In fact, just a lot of Monty Python would sum up, I think, quite a bit of British sense of humor. Um, There's probably anything made in Britain for British people. Yeah, Midsummer Murders, maybe. If you want to go down a bit of the sort of crazy, kooky countryside. And by crazy and kooky, I mean just 
a lot of little old ladies that want to kill you. Mm -hmm. um, about are you being served? I mean, oh, we, could, we oh, could just yeah. we could list television shows probably. <laughs> But, um, um, yeah, or uh, Waiting for God. That was a good one. Yeah, basically anything that was on the British comedy Britwit uh, afternoon. The panel shows that are out as well. Yeah. Also from this here, I guess keeping up appearances is a autumn people take for... Oh, gosh, yes. Aside from TV, I mean, you said Gosford Park. For a particular kind of changeling game, I was going to say Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Because uh, it's just so over the top in its manufactured grittiness that I feel like, you know, it's more of a dream of gritty England than gritty England actually is, I imagine. But mm. but I like it. So, I mean, you could do train spotting if you really want to get. <laughs> That's for the Scotland section, not the England <laughs> oh, section. Yeah. Right, right, right. We'll get to that next episode. Yeah. The Secret Garden, I think I mentioned earlier, is, was a formative yeah. one for me in my youth. But the Merchant Ivory films, maybe. There's got to be a million books. I'm sure as soon as oh, we're yeah. finished, we'll think of 10 other things that yeah. we good. Well, the show notes. That's what the show notes are for. Yeah. For books, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, obviously, is a good one. The Dark is Rising. Lord Ooh, of the Rings. Now, here's, a, so here's an interesting one that I bet neither of you will have heard of. There was a kid's cartoon show that is, I know it's on YouTube because I looked it up. Um, that I used to watch growing up in, in Yorkshire called The Animals of Farthing Wood. It, I strongly recommend watching it. It's um you would be you will be quite surprised that this that it was a children's show. It's uh, if you were about to say it sounds like uh, Watership Down, it you you'd not be wrong. I was going to say Watership Down and or Redwall. Yep. Uh it's similar feeling the basic premise is there's a bunch of woodland animals whose wood is about to be demolished for development, and they make a pact with each other to not eat each other and travel to a supposed sanctuary that they've heard tell of. And so there's this group of creatures like fox, badger, mole, owl, hedgehog, Mr. and Mrs. Hedgehog, and it's their journey to get from Farthingwood to this nature sanctuary and uh yeah i think that one would actually that one would sum up quite a bit of perhaps the slightly darker undertone of of england but that sort of stiff upper lip just sort of you know just keep going keep calm and carry on um even yeah. in the face of absolute horror like hedgehogs crossing a highway oh no maybe bring a box of tissues as well because it does get quite emotional at times there's some pretty surreal television series, too, from children's television series and stuff. But... All of this will be listed in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, read The Hobbit. Well, the early bits yeah. in the show. <laughs> Music is what, I mean, we talked about punk, so, but the Beatles, the Sex Pistols. I'm glad in the media section in this book, they do reference Steel Ice Band, which I grew up listening to, so I was very oh. happy to see that as like a quintessential yes. ye old England, but modern kind of band. You could probably add Fisherman Friends, uh, the Fisherman's Friends, to that now. They're a modern sea shanty group out of Cornwall. Nice. Fairport Convention, Jethro Tull, all kinds of options. Yep. Anyway. Um... So, yeah, thank you, thank you for coming on again, Andrew. This was Thanks for putting up my uh, various rants. <laughs> That's You're yeah. fully entitled. Do, do you have any updates on other things you're working on or places to contact you. Well, let us know where people can find you if they want to. If you yeah, want them to. Um, 
just same as uh, when we talked about Dulahan, a.goodman.illustrates on Instagram, and Andrew Goodman on the Storyteller's Vault. No new updates currently. I'm just taking a bit of a rest till the end of the year since Dulahan's out, and I will be uh, getting the ball rolling again in the new year. I'll also give a shout out to Roots of Legend, which does feature those Mistland monarchs, I believe. Yes, yes, it does. Okay. Uh, yeah. So once again, this is Changing the Podcast. You can find us at changelingthepodcast.com. You can, at the moment of this recording, follow us on Twitter at changelingcast. Status subject to change. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. You can email us, podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. Our, we're on Facebook. That looks like it should be for a lot lasting longer for sure. Uh, Change the podcast. You can find our Discord through the website changelingthepodcast.com. We're on Patreon. And uh, once again, thank you, Andrew. Um, I'm Josh. I remain Puka. And I can't think of a pithy ending to this. Always look on the bright side of banality. While there are innumerable additional pieces that a Changeling game set in England could incorporate, we'd like to officially suggest a motley consisting of a punk redcap who can't get enough of the smack barn pee-wet in his favorite wagon chip shop, the wilder Fiona Shee, daughter of a baronet who holds unlicensed raves in the spinnies of her father's Surrey estate, a thoroughly brilliant and polite but socially maladjusted slew of detective with his good-natured boggin sidekick, and Peter Cushing. We'd also like to extend special thanks to our once and hopefully future patrons, Derek, Razkabooz, Sandjigger, Sija, and Terry Robinson. To be a future patron yourself, please do consider signing up at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast and or giving us a review on the podcast listening platform of your greatest convenience. Cheers and thanks, and until next time, keep on dreaming.